we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. If we can put away all ideals, understanding their escaping and postponing quality, and face something as it is, directly, immediately, give our full attention to it, then there is a possibility of transforming it. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the philosopher's talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti, and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is ideals. Upcoming themes are identification, understanding, and struggle. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust, based at Brockwood Park in the UK, which is also home to the Krishnamurti Retreat Centre. Situated in the beautiful countryside of the South Downs National Park, the Krishnamurti Centre offers quiet retreats for those wishing to inquire into themselves in light of Krishnamurti's teachings. Please visit krishnamurticentre.org.uk for more information. You can also find daily Krishnamurti quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, which helps its visibility. This week's episode on ideals has four sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk in Ojai, 1978, titled, Why do we live with the pressure of ideals? Most people have ideals. Why? The Marxists, the totalitarian attitude, the future is all important, not the present. The ideals of Lenin, Marx, Mao. Why have ideals, the Christian ideals, and so on, so on, so on, why have ideals become so important? And why do they act as an extraordinary pressure on us? Don't they act as a pressure on you? So why do you accept the pressure of ideals. It's so simple. No, just, please, perhaps, 
at the end of the talk or on the time, we can discuss it. You can ask me, and, but let me talk for a while. Probably you haven't thought about these matters at all. Perhaps it may be something totally new, and your mind is already rejecting it. Or let's say, what would happen if I have no ideals? I've lived so long with ideals, they have given me comfort, they have guided my life, they have <coughs> acted as a solace, and so on, so on, so on. The mind being used to ideals, <coughs> and when it is challenged, it recoils and reacts. So please don't do it. Just find out, learn about it. Not from me, not from the speaker. The speaker is teaching you nothing. He's just pointing out, showing you. Take it or leave it, it doesn't matter to me. But it's very important for you to find out why ideals have become such extraordinary importance. Ideals are always in the future, right? Something in the distance. And which indicates, doesn't it, that you're not concerned with actually what is. Right? You are observing what is through the ideals of a future. So you will never come into contact directly with what is. The ideals of a good life, the ideals of an American way of living, whatever that may mean, the ideals of having no war, peace, the ideals of love, the ideal of a perfect marriage. Perfect relationship. Now, who has created these ideals? Who has created this whole monstrous society? This immoral society? Obviously, thought. No? Thought, please observe, learn, don't reject, don't say, no, it's not like that. Go into it. After all, you are here, perhaps some of you come a long way, you are here to find out. You know your own thoughts, you know your own reactions. You know your own way of thinking. So you are here to find out what somebody else has to say. So listen to the poor chap. <laughs> no, don't say, you know, it's all wrong. So thought, 
not being able to deal with the present, please listen carefully to what is, creates an ideal in the distance, hoping that ideal will help to understand the present, to deal with what is, and there is this constant battle between what is actually and what should be. This battle, this conflict, is one of the great pressures of our life. Right? Why? Why do you have pressure of ideals? If you knew, or when you understand how to deal with actually what is, then ideals are not necessary at all. Right? Yes, please investigate what the speaker is saying. Don't reject it. That is, why should you live under in a conflict between what is and what should be? Why? If you understand what is, then the conflict ceases between what, what, what is actually is happening to what, what should be happening, which is so ridiculous. So our question is then, is it possible to observe clearly, without any pressure, what is? There is a pressure if you want to change it. Right? There is pressure if you say this is ugly, brutal, and I must change it into something else. That becomes a pressure. So can you look at what is without calling it again, without using a word which drives you? I wonder if you understand all this. Look, if one is greedy or angry, jealous, the word jealousy, anger, greed, have their associations of condemnation, ra rationalization, saying it's all right, but shouldn't I be generous, and so on and so on. So the language is driving you. Right? Do you see that? Can you observe that feeling, which you call greed, which you call anger or jealousy, without using the word? If you don't use the word greed, jealousy and anger, then what takes place? The weight of the pressure of language has ended, has stopped. Therefore you're looking at a feeling which is called which is which has no name and therefore can go beyond it. You understand all this? Right? Have some of you understood all this? Or shall I go into much more?
more, all right, sir. You see, the ideal has become a part of knowledge, right? So, knowledge has become a pressure. I'm an American, hmm? or I'm a Hindu, whatever it is, some idiotic name. And that acts as a great pressure. And that pressure divides people, Arab and the Jew. You very good example. Indian and the Muslim, the Hindu. You follow? So as most of us unfortunately live in the future called the ideals, we are never capable of observing actually what's going on. Either we are living in the past, the past is our knowledge, accumulated through millions of years, which has conditioned our mind, our brain, and so we are either living in, ye- in, the, day, in the past yesterdays or in the future yesterdays. The future is the past yesterday, passing through the present, modified, and going on. It's still yesterday. I wonder if you see all this. We are not talking about philosophy. I particularly don't like philosophy. I mean, it means that philosophy means the love of life, love of truth, love of wisdom not theories, not ideals, but actually the love of wisdom. But you cannot love wisdom, something in the future, but you can only love something that you look at, that what actually is in your hand. And to observe what is actually in your hand, with all your heart, with all your your capacity to look, without naming, then the thing what you look becomes extraordinarily beautiful. Or something that has no value at all. Are you following all this? Are you doing all this? Or am I talking to empty wall? So can you be free of ideals and the pressure of the conflict that comes about between actually what is and what should be? It's a cruel way of living, isn't it? twisting your whole life into what should be. Your education, your religious institutions, 
everything has made you accept the pressure of ideals and live with it. Right? So are you free of that? So that you are capable, that you have energy to look at what is. You have no energy if you are wasting it in some ideals. That's real wastage. It saps your energy. Ideals bring about conflict. Your ideals and my ideals, somebody else's ideals, become too complicated and too silly. Now, can you move away from that? Move away in the sense you have, you have, you have understood it, you have grasped it, you have learnt about it. Therefore, it has no value anymore. And you are a free, hum- a free human being that is only observing what is and nothing else. The second extract is from the third talk in Sanan, 1979, titled Is There Security in Ideals? Each human being seeks psychological security, inward security, relying on belief, holding on, hoping thereby in a belief to find security, in an ideal, in a person, in a concept, in an experience, and <coughs> does he ever find security in any of them? You understand my question? And if he doesn't, why does he hold on to me? You understand my question? If one may, let us think over together this question. That is, if you are willing, put aside your particular vanity, your particular prejudice, your own conclusions, and let us think over this problem together. Which means, you are not accepting what the speaker is saying, nor are you accepting your own conclusions, because you have none. You put them aside. So let us think this over very carefully, and this may be one of the factors that human beings are so frightened Why does the mind cling to a particular memory, to a particular experience, 
hold on to a belief which has lost all meaning why let's let's talk it over together either he is incapable of seeing the facts or he likes to live in an illusion in a make believe which has nothing whatsoever to do with actuality the the actuality being what is taking place now or he separates the experience the idea the ideal the belief as being not accurate but holds on to them because intellectually he is incapable of investigating you you follow it now if we may proceed step by step have you any belief that you hold on to and if you hold on to a belief what is that belief how does it come into being either through centuries of propaganda as most religions have done as their metier that's their investment for centuries a belief has been created and one accepts it naturally from childhood and it's easier to follow what has been the tradition rather than to break away from it you're following all this if you have no particular ideals <laughs> beliefs then ideals the word idea i believe comes from greek which means to see to observe you understand not observe and then from it a conclusion which becomes an idea the word idea actually means to observe now have we ideals which is the future the future which is going to be achieved <coughs> the ideal has been projected from the experiences of the past from certain conclusions which have been gathered and from that you project an ideal historical worldly or personal right that is the past projecting a concept 
as an ideal, which is in the future, and conforming to the future, to that ideal. It is the same movement from the past, modified through the present and the future. Right? That's clear, isn't it? Now, if you see that, that when, they, when you have an ideal, there must be a contradiction in your daily life, because that ideal is something non-real, right? non-factual. But the factual is what is happening, and hence a conflict, an adjustment, a imitation a division. So there is constantly approximating one's action to something which is not factual. I wonder if that is illusory, this is actual. Now, after explaining that very carefully, we can go much more into details. Do you actually see this fact? Or are you already translating it into an idea? You're fully Please observe yourself. It's that is, if one has a belief, an ideal, and you see the nature of the ideal, how the ideal comes into being, <coughs> Lenin, all the <coughs> Marxist, Maoist, have these ideals. After studying history and com coming to their own particular conclusion about history and then projecting the ideas and then making human beings conform to that ideal. So have you, as a human being, thinking this out very carefully, do you see the falseness of it, and therefore letting it go? Or you like the idea, or you feel, no, not the idea, you feel if you have an ideal, you are doing something, you are active. You are accomplishing, fulfilling your ideals. And that gives one a great satisfaction, vanity, a sense of purpose. You follow me? So, after talking over together, together, does one give, put aside ideals? If you do, then you say, is it possible then to face actually what is happening? Not in contrast to the ideal and measuring what is happening according to the ideal, but have the capacity to face what is actually going on. You, you, 
in that observation of what is going actually taking place, there is no conflict. You are watching. You want, I wonder if you see this. Are we together in this or am I? <coughs> Please bear in mind, we are thinking this out together. It's very important that we not only learn to listen properly, but also have the capacity, which comes naturally if you are interested, in being able to say, that is false and it's finished. I will put aside my opinion, I won't let that interfere. And can you, can we together put aside all our ideals? Please. Because we are thinking this out together, because we are inquiring into the question of security. We think we are secure when we pursue an ideal. However false it is, however unreal it is, which has no validity, it gives a certain sense of purpose. And that sense of purpose gives a certain quality of assurance, satisfaction, security. Right? Can we go along? Not go along verbally, but actually you have put aside your ideals. So you are, now we are inquiring <coughs> into the question of security. And why do human beings, right throughout the world, Hold on to experience. Please ask yourself. Not only sexual, physical experiences, but also so-called spiritual experiences, which are much more dangerous. You walk along, by yourself or with others, you suddenly have some kind of ecstasy, some kind of delight. And that experience, you store it, hold on to it. The thing is over, right? There's the memory of it, and you ho one holds on to that memory which is called experience. The actual word experience means to go through, isn't it? To go through and finish with it, not carry on in your memory that which has happened. Now, especially in so-called 
psychological experiences or religious experiences, which are very, very subtle in their happenings, the human mind takes delight in something which is not ordinary. Ordinary being that which is happening every day. And that which has happened suddenly, or which has happened after unconsciously working at it, and then happening, I hope you are following all this, and holding on to it. Why? Does that give one a certain sense of having experienced, known <coughs> that which is something not ordinary? And that gives one a delight, a great pleasure, and in that experience there is a certain quality of, of security, because you have experience something totally other than what is. Right? You are following all this? And does belief, ideal, experience, remembrances, do they give security? Actual security, as physical security. Or does the mind like to live in a certain area of illusion? You, you. Please, we are think this, talking, thinking over together. I am not. Uh, we are not doing propaganda or trying to convince you of anything, but we are trying to get out to find out why human beings hold on to illusions, which are obvious to another. Now is it, as we said, gives them a great sense of superiority, ah, I've had something which you fellows haven't had. That's the whole gamut of the gurus. You know this. I know you don't know. And why do human beings live in this way? Why do you or X live this way? Please think it out with let's think it over together. Because your experience is personal, enclosing, self sheltered, and the another is the same. So there is always 
your experience is different from mine or another, and mine is better than yours. So there's always this division going on. So are we, in thinking this out together, holding on to our experiences, our beliefs, our ideals, our conclusions, knowing that they are merely verbal structure, knowing that they are merely a thing that's gone, finished, in the past. Why do we hold on? Is it we, are, we want to live in a certain, with certain illusions which, in which we take delight? So, does security lie in illusions? Apparently, the vast majority of people in the world like to live in illusions, whether it's scientific illusions, or the religious illusions, or economic illusions, or national illusions. They seem to like it. And are we Perhaps we are serious, not wanting mere entertainment. We are deeply concerned with the, with the social structure, which is destructive, dangerous. And we human beings say we must bring about a different quality of mind and a different society. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in New Delhi, 1972, titled Ideals Prevent Action. What is the relationship of thought to action? Living is action. Relationship is action, without action you cannot live, whether you talk, whether you eat, whether you do anything that's action. What relationship, we are asking, has thought to relation, to action? Thought has created ideas, ideals, conclusions, and from those conclusions you act. You are following this? I know you are not, I must go into it. All of you have ideals, haven't you? No? Haven't you? Yes? 
Nah, you have ideals. I haven't got any. But you have. And therefore our communication ceases. So we're going to explore why you have ideals. And if you act according to those ideals, is that action at all? Or is it incomplete action, therefore no action? You have ideals, many of them. These ideals are projected by thought, aren't they? Hmm? That is, you are violent and you say, I must not be violent. The ideal of not being violent. So there is the fact of being violent and the ideal of not being violent. So there is a time interval, right? Time interval between the fact and what should be. The what should be is the ideal. And you, are, you think you are acting according to an ideal when actually what you are doing is being violent. Right? What is the function of an ideal? Has it any value at all? Or is it a postponement or an avoidance of facing the fact and altering the fact instantly? You understand this? You have an ideal of non-violence. And you are violent. You think gradually, day after day, by practicing non-violence, you will achieve a state of mind in which violence has ceased to be. Right? What actually takes place? You are being violent every day and hoping to change violence according to the pattern you have set. Therefore, such action is inaction. I wonder if you get it. I can't help you if you don't get it. Look, sir, if you are hungry, You want to be fed now. You have no ideals about food. You may like certain kinds of food, but you want to be fed now. Why don't you do the same with regard to violence? Why do you have ideals about violence? 
Why don't you end it? Whereas if you have an ideal, you are postponing the act of understanding and putting to a, an end to violence. It is the act of a lazy mind, not an idealistic mind. Can you do it? Now, that is insight, isn't it? To see the significance of an ideal, to have an insight into it. That insight frees you instantly from violence. But whereas if you conclude that you must not be violent, then the conclusion becomes the ideal and therefore incomplete action. You've got it now? I wonder why you haven't thought out all these things for yourself. Why you depend on somebody else to tell you all this? You see how what great sorrow there is in this? That you should be told by somebody else about a simple fact like ideals. Isn't that a great sorrow? Therefore, you depend on somebody else, and that dependence breeds fear, and fear breeds sorrow. You understand all this? See, our education, our books, our teachers have helped you to depend on somebody else. The Guru will tell you what to do. The Upanishads say this and that, and the Gita this and that. So you are never capable of looking at things for yourself, understanding them and going beyond them. Inside, which is the actual word, is theory. As we said, the word theory means observation, having insight into something. So, what relationship has thought to action? Has it any relationship at all, except in the field of technology? You understand all my question? Have you understood my question? I see thought creating an ideal or an idea about action prevents action, which I have just explained. 
So, what relationship has thought to action? Is there any relationship for a harmonious total action? Or thought will always prevent the harmonious total action? You are following? So, is there an action in which thought doesn't enter at all? You are following all this? <laughs> Do please. Avanti, come together, let's move, don't let's stop in one place. I see thought brings about incomplete action, and that incomplete action breeds conflict, sorrow, pain, confusion. That's obvious. Thought in technology is absolutely necessary, but thought in relationship with each other and therefore action in that relationship, thought has no place, because thought divides. So we are going to find out together if there is an action in which thought doesn't enter at all, and therefore an action that is complete, not fragmentary, not contradictory, that's whole, healthy, sane. You understood my question? We're going to find out. Because you are used to action based on idea, and therefore division in action, contradiction in action. Now what we are saying, asking, is, is there an action in which this contradiction this conflict, this division doesn't exist at all, an action which is total, harmonious, non-fragmentary. You have understood now? The final extract in this episode is from the ninth talk in Ojai, 1949, titled Ideals are a postponement. We have a collection of ideals and the choice is wide. We try to realize them through various methods. This is a long and time-taking way. In listening to you, I feel that the distinction or space between ideal and practice is illusory. Is this so? First of all, are we aware, each one of us, that we have ideals? And that having these ideals, we are trying to practice them, or live up to them, or approximate ourselves with them.
Take the question of violence. We have ideals of non-violence. And we try to practice it, practice that ideal in our daily life. Or take any other ideal that you have. We are trying to live up to them all the time. Practice them if you are serious. And not merely living on the verbal level. And that takes time, a constant application, a series of failures, and so on. So, why do we have ideals? any collection of them. Why do we have them? Do they better our life? And is virtue to be gained through a constant disciplining? Is virtue a result? Or is it something quite different? Take humility. Can you practice humility? Or does humility come into being when the self is not important? When the me and the mind do not predominate? But if we make that into an ideal, that the self should not predominate, then arises the question how to, how to come to that state. So surely this whole process is very complicated and unreal, is it not? There must be a different approach to this problem, surely. Is not a collection of ideals an escape? Because it gives us time to play with it. The same practice. I am disciplining myself, one day I will be that. It is necessary to go slowly, to evolve towards it, you know, all the various explanations that we give. Now, is there a different approach? 
Because we can see that way this constant disciplining towards an ideal, approximating oneself towards an ideal, does not really bring about the solution of the problem. We are no more, more kindly. We are not less violent. We may be superficially, not fundamentally. So, how is one then to be non-greedy without having the ideal of non-greed? Take for example, I am greedy, or I am mean, or angry, any of these things. And the ordinary process is to have an ideal and approximate myself to that ideal all the time, practice, discipline, and so on. Does that free me from greed, from anger, from non-violence, from violence? What will free me from violence is to be free from my desire to be something, from my desire to gain something, to protect something, to achieve a result, and so on. So our difficulty is, is it not, that having these ideals, this constant desire to become something, to be something, is really the crux of the matter. After all, greed or anger is one of the expressions of the me, the self, the I. And as long as that I remains, anger will continue. And merely to discipline it to function a certain way does not feed from anger. So surely this process only emphasizes the self, the me, does it not? Now if I realize that I am angry or greedy, Need I go through all the disciplinary process in order to be free from it? 
there not a different approach to it, different way of tackling? I can only tackle it differently when I no longer take pleasure in sensation. And there is a, gives me a sensation of pleasure, doesn't it, afterwards? Though I may dislike it, there is a, an excitement involved in it. It's a release. So, the first thing, it seems to me, is to be aware of this process. That the ideal does not eradicate. It's merely a form of postponement. That is, I, to understand something I must give full attention. And an ideal is merely a distraction from my giving the, that feeling or that quality full attention at the given time. If I am fully aware, give my full attention to the quality I call greed, without the distraction of an ideal, then am I not in a position to understand it? And so dissolve it. See, we are so accustomed to postpone. And ideals help us to postpone. But if we can, for the time being, put away all those, because we understand the escapes, a postponing quality of an ideal, and face the thing as is, directly, immediately, give our full attention, then surely there's a possibility of transforming it. You see, when if I realize that I'm violent, I'm aware of it, and not try to transform it, not try to become non-violent, but merely be aware of it, then I am, because I'm, my attention is fully given to it, I'm, then it opens up the various implications of violence. And therefore there is an inward transformation, surely. But if I practice non-violence, or non-greed, or what you will, then I'm postponing, am I not, from giving my attention to what is, which is greed or violence. <coughs> See, most of us have ideals in order, either as a means of postponing, or we want to be something, we want to achieve a result. The very desire to become the ideal, surely, there is violence involved in 
the very becoming of something, of myself towards a goal, surely violence is involved, is it not? See, we all want to be something. We want to be happy. We want to be more beautiful. We want to be more virtuous. We want to be something more and more and more. Surely in the very desire for something more, there is violence involved. There is greed involved. But if we can look at that problem, that the, the more I want to be, the more conflict. And therefore, the ideal merely helps me to, in, to increase my conflict. Which doesn't mean I'm satisfied with what I am, on the contrary. As long as I want to be something more, there must be conflict, there must be pain, there must be anger, violence. If one really feels that, profoundly is affected by that, sees that, aware of it, then I'm able to deal with the problem immediately, <coughs> without having a collection of ideals to encourage me to be this or that. Then my action and is immediate. My relationship it is direct. And also in, in it arises another problem, which is the the experience of and the experience with most of us are two different states or processes. The ideal and myself are two different states. I want to become that. Therefore, the I, the experience of the thinker, is different from thought. Is, that, so is the thinker different from thought? Or is there only thought which creates the thinker? So as long as I am separate from the thought, Then I can manipulate thought, I can change it, transform it. But is the I who is operating on a thought different from thought? 
Surely they are joint phenomena, are they not? The thinker and the thought are one, not separate. When one is angry, one is angry. There is a state, there is um, an integrated feeling, which we term as anger. Then I say, I am angry. Therefore, I am separate myself from that anger. And then I can operate on that anger, do something about it. But if I realize that I am angry, that I am, that I am that quality itself, the quality is not separable from me. Surely when I experience that, then is, there is a quite a different action, quite a different approach. Now we separate ourselves from the thought, from the feeling, from the quality. Therefore the I is a separate entity from the quality and therefore the I can operate on the quality. But the quality is not different from the I, from the thinker. And when there is that integrated experience of the thinker and the thought as one, not separate, then surely there is a quite a different approach and a reaction response. Again you experiment with this and you will see. Because at the moment of experiencing, there is neither the experiencer nor the experienced. It's only as you come out of that, as the experiencing fades, then there is the experiencer and the experience. Then the experiencer says, I like that or I do not like it. I want more of it or I want the less of it. Then he wants to, to cultivate the ideal, to become the ideal. But if the thinker is the thought and not two separate processes, then his whole attitude is transformed, is it not? Then there is a quite a different response with regard to thought. Then there is no longer make, um, approximating thought to an ideal or getting rid of thought. then there is no maker of effort. And I think this is really very important to discover this for oneself. To experience this directly, not 
because I say so or someone else says so. To come to this experience that the thinker is the thought. Don't let that become a new jargon, a new set of words which we use. Through verbalization we don't experience. We merely have sensations. And sensations are not experienced. And if one can be aware of that process, of this joint phenomena, then I think this question will be understood much more profoundly than merely uh, having ideals or no ideals, which is really beside the point. If I am my thoughts, and my thoughts are not different from me, then there is no maker of effort, is there? then I do not become that. Then I am no longer cultivating virtues. Not that I am virtuous. The moment I am conscious that I am virtuous, I am not virtuous. The moment I am conscious that I am Humble, surely, humility ceases. So if we can understand the maker of effort, which is the me becoming, The becoming of self-protected demands, desires, are the same as myself. Then surely there is a radical transformation in my whole outlook. You see, that's why it is important to have right meditation. To know what right meditation means, not the approximation, not trying to reach out somewhere and get something, not to attain, not to concentrate, not to de develop certain qualities and so on, which we discussed previously. But right meditation is the understanding of this whole process of the me, of the self. Because as I said, right meditation is self-knowledge. And without meditation you will, one cannot find out what the process of the self is. There is no meditator to meditate something upon. 
then meditation is the experiencing of that which is the total process of the thinker as a form. Then only one is there possibility of really making the mind quiet. Then one, then it is possible to discover if there is something beyond the mind. Not a verbal assertion that there is or that there is not. That there is Atman, the soul, or what you... We are not discussing those things. Going beyond all verbal expression. Only when the mind is quiet. Not the higher level, the upper level mind, but the whole content of the mind part, whole consciousness is part. But there is no quietness if there is a maker of effort. And there will be the maker, the will of action, as long as he thinks he is separate from the form. And it requires, requires a great deal of going into, thinking it out, not just trying to experience it superficially and sensationally. Then one has, when one has that experience, then becoming the ideal is illusory. This has no meaning at all there. Then it's an altogether wrong approach. Then one sees this whole process of becoming. The more, the greater, has nothing to do with reality. Reality comes into being only when the mind is completely quiet. And there is no effort. And virtue is a state of that freedom in which there is no make, making an effort. Therefore, virtue is a state in which effort has completely ceased. But if you make an effort to become virtuous, surely it's no longer virtue, is it? So as long as we do not understand, we do not experience the thinker and the thought of one, then all these problems exist. But the moment we experience that, the maker of effort comes to an end. To experience that, one must be completely aware of what, of the process of one's own thinking and feeling. 
the desire to become. And that's why it's important if one really is seeking reality of God or what you will, that this whole mentality of climbing, evolving, growing, achieving must come to an end. We are much too worldly. We carry that mentality of the clerk becoming the boss, the foreman becoming the executive. With that mentality, we approach reality. We want, we think we'll do the same thing, get, go climb the ladder of success. I'm afraid it cannot be done that way. If you do, you live in the world of illusion. Therefore, conflict, pain, misery and strife. That if we discard all such mentality, such thoughts, such points of view, then one becomes really humble. One is, not become. And then there is a possibility of having a direct experience of reality. Which alone will dissolve all our problems, not our cunning efforts, not our great intellect, not deep and wide knowledge. 